there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I like to talk to creative people about how they do their thing, how they see their projects through, what keeps them going, what motivates them through all the ups and downs. Today, my guest is an author. His name is David Ambrose. He's the author of a memoir called A Place Called Home. It is a moving and powerful and at times gut-wrenching, at times transcendent uh, personal account of his early life dealing with poverty and homelessness. Um, his mother struggles with mental illness, and he and his siblings were eventually put into foster care, and, and that was its own um, bag of, of, of obstacles. And he weathered all of it and came through it and has a wonderful perspective about it. And I found the book very moving. It's sort of changed the way I think about these issues that he talks about, and it's beautifully written, and I was so excited to talk to him. So anyway, that's the guest. But before I get to that, I want to encourage you to check out dnrstudios.com. That is a group of other shows that I'm part of a collective with, and you can listen to my podcast through that app. And if you do that and subscribe, then I get uh, a little, you know, kickback in the form of um, a little cash in my pocket. Which is nice. It's a way to support the podcast. And you get all these other great shows as well. So learn about that at dnrstudios.com. You can also listen to my podcast, whoever you've always listened to it. But if you do it through DNR, you get my episodes two, uh, two days earlier. You know, so all the kids are talking about it. You know what they're talking about when they're talking about my episodes and you're not in the dark, right? All right. That's enough of the plugs. Here now is the interview with David Ambrose. Uh, joining me now via Zoom, it's author David Ambrose. The book is A Place Called Home. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good morning. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you. Your book is so beautiful. It's so well written. It's uh, a memoir. It's a, it's your story. Yeah. Um, I laughed. I cried. <laughs> I was kind of in a puddle. Um, me too. Me too. <laughs> it talks about your life. How do you describe it to people that haven't read it, that don't know anything about it? I describe it as uh, Forrest Gump meets Hillbillyology with a whole heavy <laughs> dose of Precious. Um, it is not. I don't a remember of anyone things. throwing a TV at you, but um... uh, it didn't make the final edit. But uh, no, in all seriousness, you know, it's been quite a journey, and I've had a magical and challenging life that uh, sometimes seems impossible, even to me. Um, but it's the story I'm trying to share to inspire people to move from empathy to action, to do something to help kids like me. So not jokingly, it has been quite an adventurous life. And, and I try and share that adventure, the ups and downs and many downs. Um, but how my family and I came through, came through homelessness, foster care, ended yeah. up going to college. It's quite an odyssey. Um, you, your mother struggled with, with mental illness. Um, is she still with us, your mother? Yeah, my mom is uh, very much still with us. She's receiving treatment now. I'm one of her caregivers, uh, something I've been working on for 20-plus years to wow. get her the help she needs. Um, and she actually is uh, She's doing as well as she's going to be doing. And Hi. I'm very happy with that. All right. Uh, well, you dedicate the book to her and your siblings, mm -hmm. but you said that your mother taught you to conquer one impossible thing at a time. Yeah. I just thought that was such a beautiful and appropriate statement because your book read to me like, you know, those movies where people get dropped in the wilderness or they are <laughs> out yes. marooned at sea and it's one bad thing. Naked goes, and afraid. Naked and afraid. <laughs> and one thing goes wrong after another and after another, and then that goes wrong and then that goes wrong and then that goes wrong. And you're like, are they going to survive? And in your case, the wilderness was the social safety net or the, the system, right? Yeah. And, and your situation. Talking about impossible things, do you find that your background makes you think that things are possible that other people might not think are possible? In other words, even if it's just yeah. a big task, like we got to clean out this whole garage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not that hard. Like, in other words, like you <clears throat> can do things that other people maybe think aren't yeah. too hard. Uh, so I'll share a story, which is one of the first moments I realized the nature of things, as it were. I was uh, early, I was you know, between four and six, I don't know exactly, and I was begging in Grand Central, where my family lived. And we we were highly mobile. We lived all over the city and in the nooks and crannies of public spaces. And I was begging as the morning rush 
uh, rush hour was happening and the commuters were coming off Metro North, which is a commuting northern railroad that goes up towards Albany and comes down into the city. And up in front of me, as I was standing there as a child, about four feet in front of me, folks opened up and then behind me came back together. No one looked at me. And what I realized was in that moment, I wouldn't have said this then because I didn't have the language, but I was unplugged from the matrix Mm, (laughs) that I was completely not of this world and that all of these things had nothing to do with me. And it wasn't a positive or negative in that moment, a negative in that I needed the money to, to eat. Sure. But it was a realization that if I wanted to survive, I had to stop pretending to play by these, these rules because they weren't going to serve me and my family would not survive. And so I quickly realized that these things that we think and take for granted are just made up. Society is very fragile, as we've learned, and my family was outside of it. So the impossibility of it was each day my mom presented a Mount Everest of a challenge. Like, what is going to happen to me today? Right. What is the world going to do to me today? And it's not if, it's what and how much is it going to hurt? Right. And how am I going to get through it? So it it wasn't that I enjoyed the lesson, but it certainly was an early lesson I've learned. And it has served me very well, which is I think of no as a request for more information. I think of these challenges and these impossible things, you know, guidance counselors telling me I'll never go to college or society telling me that because I was gay, I was worthless and going to die of uh, a disease. All that I've never, ever bought into. Yeah. And that's because my mom taught me that lesson through her unfortunate mental health. There are certain people that I've noticed in our culture. There's, there was a documentary called Vito about Vito Russo uh-huh. and uh, my friend Jeffrey made it. A great documentary. But he's talking about... He's talking about, fan. oh, good, good. He's talking about homophobia or people, all the messages he was getting. And he, there was this line that always stuck out to me. He goes, I always knew they were full of shit. <laughs> and I think there are people who can see through bullshit really young. Yeah. And, and you seem to have like an intuitive sense of where adults were coming from. Like you didn't buy into everything that was being told to you. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it was, I think it's very fair and it doesn't mean that I didn't have moments of darkness. I think the idea for me was through inaction, most of society was trying to erase me. No one really would have blinked if my family had died. As I opened up the first chapter, we were dying of exposure that night after being cleaned up out of a public space where we were sleeping in the middle of winter. And I don't think anyone would have cared. And I, how many people die every day on the streets? Hundreds in our country, probably thousands, and no one blinks. So I learned very early that these things, that these niceties just weren't applicable to me, that if my family was going to survive, we had to do what we had to do to survive. And I had to survive not just the conditions we lived in, but my mother, and then later foster care. And everyone looks around and thinks about like, that's horrible, that system, we are the system. We all are the system. I didn't survive some uh, uh, ignominious thing out there. It was all of us. And I am part of that system today. I survived the indifference of a country that's watching 8.4 million children today in abject poverty in the United States of America, 8.4. We have had that number since I was a child. We can do it if we choose to, but there's still 8.4 million children. So many schools are Title I schools in our country. Which what does that mean exactly? Know, it means that they serve free lunch to the majority of kids that go there. Yeah. They serve free lunch because there's not enough calories in their diet. There's not enough food. What are their parents eating when they go home? Yeah. That is a family that is hungry. In our country, hunger is affecting so many people, millions of Americans, So it's not just something that happened in the 70s and 80s to David Ambrose. It's happening today, and we're all part of it. So we have to to realize that we are, as they used to say, right, we are soiling green. We need to wake up and realize that we are the change we want to see. And that's what I hope my book does. I hope it inspires people to believe in our agency to do something. And we can't. There are are endless things we can do as individuals and collectively. Wow. Um, The first words of your book are, I'm hungry. And hunger, <laughs> hunger plays a big, a big yeah. part of your story and also how you could 
focus on the hunger so as not to focus on other things that were even more unpleasant. It's just, it's just comes up in a lot of, in a lot of different, different yeah. ways. Um, how hard was it for you to write? How, how oh. did you, you, were you like, I'm not going to, I'm going to do this someday, but I'm not quite ready or it's, it, I'm busy. I've got a career. Like how hard was it? I, uh, I used to say almost as a verbal tick, like the one that my mom has, right? Like when she says, did I say thank you? I used I, to say. It's such a recurring thing. And it's so, <laughs> that line is so strategic <laughs> because it's sort of passive aggressive in a weird, like it, and it's, it's just like, mm, that's her thing. Yeah. That's mom. She, she, my mom was, my mom was a very cunning individual, very intelligent. So I always said as kind of a verbal tick that I'm going to write a book and I sort of meant it, but I sort of didn't mean it. I think a lot of people probably say things of that nature. Like I'm going to lose these 10 pounds. Um, I got to the point in my mid late thirties where I realized that my coping mechanism for my entire life, since I, as far back as I could remember, but especially when I entered foster care was to take all the assaults, verbal, physical, and neglect, and just put it in these clear plastic bins and label the bin. And then I put it on my card catalog system and I knew exactly where these things were. Right. I did not deny them, but I didn't have to feel them. Right. It was a container and, store problem. You just got something in a yeah, container store. Completely on sale. And there was never enough containers. <laughs> when I was in my mid thirties, my damn shelf broke. Yeah. And all of these things came off and the boxes opened and they demanded my attention. Oh. And my new reality was I did not have that coping mechanism anymore. So in, in Los Angeles, for instance, in my, in my thirties, I was the uh, head of the planning commission for Los Angeles for years. And then on the planning commission for years more. And that is where the people come out to testify for or against projects that are, you know, development. Right. People were so angry and I could deal with that. Everyone's like, you deal with that so well. And I'm like, wow, it's nothing compared to my childhood. Joke, right. joke, joke. In my mid late thirties, the shelf broke. Right. And I had to figure out what am I going to do with these, these things that happened to me yeah. that are still Oof. there. And then how am I going to deal with the world now? Because I, I didn't have that mechanism anymore. I got great therapy. I was much more vulnerable with friends and family about, you know, what was going on with me currently. And I had the lessons of uh, my foster son who uh, went through his own uh, trauma and taught me about being vulnerable. Um, if I wanted to give him the love that he needed, I needed to be vulnerable and share my own pain, which I, ha I had never done. My, my brother and sister knew very little of these stories. My, no one in my life really knew much about this. So I had to do that because candidly my shelf broke and life demanded it. And I think it broke by the way, because I was in a place finally of true security, true safety. I had, I have an army of great friends. I have financial resources. I'm very stable in every single way. And I think my psyche realized that now's the time. Right. You can do it now. Mm -hmm. Um, you write that you didn't cry for something like 23 years, 20 yeah, something so it, years. Yeah. Um, not intentionally, but sort of intentionally at first. And then it just became a, who I was. Yeah. I entered foster care and I was, uh, segregated for many reasons. One of which was my sexuality, which was diagnosed very young. Diagnosed was, is the term. And I was put into a delinquency facility and it was a place where young, young people were there because they had done something very wrong and they were very violent and I did not belong there. And I was almost immediately assaulted and, and repeatedly so for quite a period of time, very violently. And when the, one of the first assaults happened, I was attacked by a group of, of young, young men and I, that was the last time I cried because I realized if I kept crying and showing this weakness in this place that I would, I would be tortured even more. Yeah. It would make it worse. And I realized that very quickly that no one gave a shit. Um, society had taken me from my mother and, and you know, that hell. And I learned that hell had a basement and it was called group homes right. and delinquency facilities and I turned it off and I didn't intend at that moment that I would never cry again. But the next couple of years were even differently more brutal. Well, that's what keeps happening in the book. You go to a new place and you're like, maybe this won't be as bad. And then it's 
worse. <laughs> so I could understand, I could understand, um, why you did that. Can I ask what, what it was that, that allowed you to cry later? Was there a moment? My son, my foster son. Oh, it's so beautiful. My foster son, um, <clears throat> demanded in, in an imperfect way that I open up and, uh, you know, talking about these things that happened to me, it's, it's still just right there in my heart. It's so painful. And I, I hadn't had to do that. And, uh, he demanded that as children do, they teach us so much wow. about being, uh, human. How old is your, your foster son? He's 27 now. He's 27 now. He's doing great. He's in grad school. He's, uh, living his best life. And he's How married. old was he when you, uh, when you started fostering? Uh, 12, 13. Right on. Um, and just like I was when I went to my good foster family, the Holly and Steve, they're yes, we a love beautiful Holly family. Well, it's ironic because I, I showed up in her life when I was 12 and 13 yeah. and, uh, <laughs> the universe is funny that way, isn't it? But my son, um, my son taught me to be a full, he called you out human. a little bit. Absolutely. Wow. Um, you were sort of the leader of your siblings, even though you were the youngest, at least it felt that way. And mm-hmm. it was that, that, is that a fair assessment? I would say it's a fair assessment and I haven't had any contradictions from my wonderful brother and sister. So yeah, that's interesting to me. You were the youngest, but you were the one that was like, nope, we're going to do this. You, you were very, um, shrewd, like you, with your things that you would do to get food and stuff like that. Um, mm. this is something I think about with my own life sometimes. If I were straight, my life would look totally different. I think being mm. gay made me different from my family and those trajectories were not going to be for me. I think it made me more ambitious in a way. Mm. Um, do you ever wonder what your odyssey would have been like if you had been straight? If the same things had happened to you, but if you had been straight? I I have not not thought about it. Right. Um, because some of the most pernicious things done to me... Um, or in service of uh, curing my, my right. sexuality. And society, you know, when I was a kid growing up, New York City was just full of the shelters of men dying of, of AIDS, you know, abandoned by a country that didn't give a shit and wasn't doing anything to help them. I saw it all around me through passive and active lessons that this was wrong, and yet it was something I couldn't change. Um I don't, I, I, it's not that I fantasize about it. I recognize how brutal it was additionally because of it. Um, but I don't think it's, it's something I would ever would change. I think it may be a tool to help kids like me. Um, right. I worked for years to change foster care practice to ensure that no kid was ever diagnosed again. Um, and I, I was part of a team that did that and I, I think about the experiences we have and what we do with them. And I had, I not had that experience. I wouldn't have ever gave a shit. Right. I wouldn't have cared or paid attention. And I hope that actions that I've taken in response to my experience have made it better for others. Do I think it would have been easier? Maybe. Um, or maybe harder in different ways. Right. Um, I think about being a girl and a woman and what they experience in our society. And I don't know, is that better or worse? It's kind of a toss up, isn't it? Um, I definitely think being queer at my earliest memory definitely made me feel a sense of differentness and alienation that also, I think, in some respects served me. And I think there's a lot of great writing about that. Right. Uh, That's kind of what I was getting at. It sort of gives you a little bit of a different point of view. You come at things differently. Um, You like show kid, you like show business kid things. Like you wanted to be in Peter Pan. (laughs) And I was like, when those parts of the books came, I was like, yes, that's, you know, like you have that sort of you want to get up and do the show thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, two things. One, um, we all are performers in some way. And I think for gay people as the velvet rage so aptly talks about how do we derive external validation and love? And that's through some element of performance and our performances, we have to hide right, right in front of everybody. And so we're taught to hide and act very young through a million impossibly invisible and yet screamingly loud me- uh, messages. And I loved it. I loved um, performance. And it's not that I wanted to be closeted. I 
couldn't have even said that word. I wouldn't have known it. But I knew I couldn't be who I was, and I had to pretend to be something else. And I realized that I enjoyed performance. I enjoyed being something that people liked. I enjoyed being in a fantasy world that wasn't as brutal as mine. Um, books were a vehicle for that for me. And then I saw theater. And I was like, this is amazing. Right. Um, it was amazing. It was joyous. It was uh, contained. Um, I just thought it was just going to be something that I would be able to escape into. And unfortunately, that didn't work out. Yes, um, you had moved on before the opening night. It's hard, one of my, another uh, heartbreak. Along the well, I'm journey. glad to sing the song for you after we're off. Uh, yeah, I we still can remember it. it. But um, I listened to the audiobook, and you do a great job of that. So do you, do you enjoy speaking and performing in different ways now as an adult, doing readings and things like yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, I sure do. I really enjoy um, – I've always enjoyed kind of moderating panels and, and yeah. speaking. Um, I don't have stage fright in the same way that a lot of folks do. Um I just enjoy the interaction with humans in that way. And I think that my, one of my most favorite moments, either telling or listening, is storytelling. I love listening to people talk. I listen to Moth Radio Hour. I listen to um, audiobooks myself. I read voraciously. I think storytelling is one of the most beautiful aspects of being human. And I enjoy doing it. I, I love interacting with people. I think foster care and survival have honed me to be a quick-witted individual. And, you know, education has has made me thoughtful in that. Um, and that's why I think I've been good at some of these things. And over time I've learned to enjoy them and yeah. I do enjoy them, but it. it's interesting is I, I really do love listening. I, I, I don't know if do you, if you people, folks know moth radio hour, but it's just, you know, real quote unquote people telling short stories. And I just think it's one of the most beautiful thing or story core. Yeah. I just love those listening to people. Um, share that's the human condition and it's just a beautiful messy condition yeah when did you know you were smart oh goodness well my mom told me from my earliest memories that i was a genius and i would become a supreme court justice and not even bullshitting you that's one of the things my mom taught me so young was um we could get out of this through education um i don't i don't know if i thought i was particularly smart at you know algebra I knew very young that I had to survive and day to day, each survival was a victory and that's street smarts. Um, I had to connive in order to get things done. And that is just the hustle that a lot of people in poverty have to do. I had to learn how to play adults in order to mitigate or secure something. And that was, I had to learn language. So these skills that I acquired weren't, I, I don't know if they were innate or drilled into me by the, the most hard circumstances. Right. And I think over time, those things accumulate into what our collective perception is of as an intelligence. And I speak a certain way because I went to a lot of school. Um, but the skills that I learned that under, under grid that are things that I learned as young as I can possibly remember, uh, that if I wanted to survive today, I had to figure out how to do that. Well, that it was very sophisticated. It was sophisticated the way you would approach certain situations. Like you really saw what was going on um, yeah. for, for, for as young as you were. Was it hard to remember things when it was time to write? I would say that for me, the things I shared were some of the bleakest moments. Yeah. And quite often in my experience personally, but also just in reading memoirs and, and uh, listening to audiobooks and such, people remember those things that are burnt into their memory. And there's moments that are just seared into my memory. Um, some too painful to include in the book. Wow. Um, was it hard? It was hard in maybe a different way than you meant. Uh, it was hard to go back and put myself in that moment and remember what it smelled like. Uh, but these are moments that are seared into my mind, um, usually because of pain. Yeah. But sometimes joy. Um, like the story in Spain when Gabriella is giving me um, the mountain and, and folks will have to listen to that. That was not. Spain, I wrote in big capital letters, Spain. I, that <laughs> section was so profoundly beautiful and moving to me. And Gabrielle, she should have taken Oprah's time slot. She's smart. <laughs> she's loving. Like the thing that she says to you at the end, 
Um, you can be someone who suffered or you can be yourself. I mean, I could cry thinking about it. Like, what, what a remarkable woman, right? Remarkable. You know, um, graduated our equivalent of high school, you know, ran a store. Her family, you know, have owned vineyards for a thousand years and she works those and, you know, salt of the earth, Basque woman from Northern Spain. And, um, you know, Holly began, Holly and Steve began a project to <laughs> recoup the remnants of a human. And Gabriella took that, that baton and loved deeply despite everything. And what was unique about Spain when I moved there, when I left Foscara at 17 was the lack of language and the complete novelty of living in a different culture gave me permission in parts of my soul and my mind, as well as the external folks that I could be imperfect and messy and the other pieces I wasn't trying to survive. Yeah. You went to Spain when you were 17, kind of as a year abroad kind of thing. Yeah. And I love to travel. I also find the world interesting. I love America, but I, I feel a connection to other cultures in a way. Absolutely. And that's that chapter. I just found it so beautiful because it was sort of beyond what you could even have imagined. Um, yeah, hundred percent. She gave you a mountain. She gave me a mountain. She gave me, uh, parts of myself back and, um, I was allowed imperfectly and, and too quickly, uh, to try and be something other than a survivalist adult in the streets of New York city, um, explore friendship and, um, just being silly. And I, I am forever changed because of that, that year I lived there. But I remember the scene where you pick up the pamphlet and you think, oh, you know, you think, oh, this could be amazing, but there's a million reasons why it would never be able to happen for you. And you just yeah. kept pushing them away <laughs> and you made it happen. Yeah. Like, yeah. like it's a tribute to you that you got there. Um, also Mateo, is that his name? The motorcycle guy? That's his name in the book. Oh. I had to change names, but oh, Mateo. Oh, so yes. dreamy. Oh, you don't even know the half of it. And, yeah. uh, let's just say I've seen Mateo since I've gone back to Spain a number of times and he's as dreamy as he was then. As dreamy. Is he married? Does he have kids? Yeah, I'm sure. But he, he, I thought what he did was sweet. Am I misreading that in a way? I, th I thought I what he did was in, sort of generous. Like, yeah, I agree. I just think we think in these black and white terms with regards to sexuality. Right. And especially as young people, we're much more experimental than, than, uh, yeah. society would have us believe. And he was a beautiful man that, that cared for me, uh, a young man. He was my, he was I don't right. know, probably 17 as well. And, you know, we were, we were exploring together and we were probing what it meant to be human. And, you know, I, I was going that way and he ultimately went that way. Sure. But together we were in that moment where we we're both trying to figure out what we wanted and who we were. And he was a beautiful, he is a beautiful human. And I, I still maintain my friendship with him. I love it. So you've been back to Spain and many times. Yes. Oh, I, I love it. Um, there are people in your life that you come across, but because of the system and the fostering and everything, you lose track of people. Has anyone from those days read your book and connected with you? Has the book connected you to any people that you may have lost along the way? Yeah. You know, a lot of folks have reached out, um, through different social platforms and some of them, I don't even remember. Um, many of them I do, uh, some of the foster siblings that I've had, um, have reached out some of the foster families that were less than great, um, have reached out. And I, for me, it's kind of like a wave on the beach. Like I, I barely have enough time in the day to do what I want to do and, and be close to my friends and family. So I appreciate that. I'm, I don't begrudge anyone, you know, 20 years, 30 years on the chance to seek connection or forgiveness or whatever. Um, but even more recently, like, you know, I have friends that live two blocks from me that have never really known my story who now have read my diary basically. Right. And it has pulled us closer. So it's not just strangers once upon a time reaching out. It's, it's also individuals in my current life because I didn't share much of this, um, beyond the headlines of I grew up in foster care have also connected with me more deeply. Um, including some of the evil people in my past, um, have reached out. I, 
yeah, and I just kind of let it go, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't need to spend my, my mental energy on them. They, they have no claim to my time or attention. And I, like a wave on the beach, I'm like, you wash right off me. You can't stay on. Interesting. Um, do you have many photos from growing up? I have almost none. Um, I have two photos from when I was maybe, um, I don't know exactly, but I was probably around eight. I have one photo. The book tells a story when I lived at the church. Yes, and, the uh, church. Yeah, my family lived at a, a church for a minute, and we lived in the former linen closet. And uh, there's actually a photo of that time. Um, and it's an interesting photo because I'm sitting there in this room with other kids, and I'm just completely inappropriately dressed, you know, and, in shorts and uh, giant shoes that look clownishly large on me. And uh, that was a photo I have. Um, and I have one other, but I really have almost no photos. We, you know, time does not pass the same way as it does for homeless people as it does for other people. It Time is just um, quick and slow uh, all at once. So I don't have moments that are marking the passage of time. We don't celebrate birthdays. We didn't, I don't have holiday cards. I don't have a closet where I was stood up against a wall and measured my height. There's no markers of these things that traditionally exist in people's lives. And, and, and you would be in and out of different schools and, yeah. you know, would you do, would you do school photos sometimes, but then not be there when they came in and stuff like that? Almost never. Um, almost never, you know, first, you know, I'd be bruised or I'd have lice or, you know, we wouldn't be there. We were barely in school, but I, I was not allowed to participate in those things because, uh, my mom wouldn't want me to, and, or I wasn't in school at the time. Um, I'm sure there are photos of me that someone accidentally took, <laughs> uh, that exist out there. I'm not seeking them, but, uh, it is an interesting thing to discuss today. Like how young people are documenting their entire it, existence. Everything is photographed. Everything is posted. Yeah. And, I mean, I, yeah. I barely have anything until like Holly and Steve when my, my mid teenagers. Right. And, um, how are they doing? There's all these They're people awesome. that you read about in the book, and you're like, I want to know who they are. So Holly and Steve were were the foster family you stayed with. Oh, look, there there's a photo. Are. I love it. There they are. I so love that's it. my biological family, and that's Holly and Steve. I love um, it. Holly and Steve are doing wonderfully. What do They're, they think of the uh, book? They could not be more supportive. I love it. Um, they could not be more supportive. I uh, I care so much about them. And, uh, my foster sisters as well, Brianna and Ruth in the book, and they could not be more supportive of me in the book. And, you know, they each have bought 10 copies and at, at geographically distributed bookstores and they're posted and they're, they're doing everything they can to put the book on, on blast. Um, and they're all doing great. Uh, I love that. There's a scene early on when you're at Holly's house, when she comes home from Costco and there's all this food <sighs> and you're like, and your food has been such a obstacle for you and it's just there's all of it but but yeah. your reaction to it is you don't quite know what to make of it right you just feel a little bit stuck talk about that yeah i mean hunger had been a brutal master for all the years before foster care many of my days revolved around food where was i going to get it i did not have enough and i think people go through our days and we're like oh i'm hungry i th i think profound hunger is something on a whole other magnitude and it, it hollowed out everything. And then when I entered foster care, it was weaponized by some of the foster families and used to subdue me. Um, I was provided less calories than I needed to d dill, d um, dull my senses right. and make me less mouthy. Um, and it also was a place I could, um, go to. And, and feel, uh, instead of feeling what was being done. You could focus on the hunger instead of the other horrors. That it was were almost around. meditative. Yeah. Interesting. It was almost meditative and hunger is a very demanding thing and it could occupy my brain so that I didn't have to feel what was going on in yeah. whatever violence or, or maltreatment. And when I got to Holly and Steve's, it was like just Bounty. Whatever you want. And, yeah. And Costco, and, those, those, those containers are gigantic. It must have been surreal, oh, right? 
It was the container. It was the size and the bounty. It was like the grocery store was in my house. And there was this person in control of me who was saying, this is yours. Yeah. And you can have whatever you want, whenever you want, forever. And it was not just that I, I had hunger issues. It was that my, my coping mechanism was being challenged. Right. And I had to like pause and be like, is this a weapon? <laughs> there was an adjustment it, period. Oh yeah. You couldn't just like, you know, dive in and, and this is great. Mm-hmm. It was, it was a period of like, what do I make of this? How do I incorporate it? Yeah. Um, yeah. There are a few scenes in the book where you speak up and I was like, Ooh, go. But I was also afraid for you. Yeah. Where does that come from? You, you just kind of have that, that thing of like, no, this is wrong. I can. And you also were articulate and you were able yeah. to make an argument. Um, yeah. I credit my mom with the articulateness. You know, she made us learn and speak and read despite not going to school and challenged us. She used to, uh, you know, unfortunately mock us when we sounded, um, in her words, dumb. So, um, you know, where does that come from? I think it comes from a place that we all have where there is a line that is the line and we are enduring up until that point. And sometimes people cross that line for me and my line, uh, over time, I grew more bold and more confident in being able to survive what was being done. And I, I grew, uh, in my ability to stand up for myself one moment in the book that I share is when the last person to abuse me, uh, was, was abusing me <laughs> and I stood up for myself and, yeah. um, I storm, I walked away and this is despite the violence that was being done to me at that moment and, and had been done to me mentally and physically. And I, I just walked away and I never looked back at that person. Um, so I think we all have moments and points and I didn't explode. I realized in that moment that I did not have to take this anymore, that I, I didn't have to let anyone else hurt me. Um, and I decided not to, and I have that all throughout my life. I have that today. I have lines. Sometimes yeah. I just need to be done with work and you close the laptop. Sometimes you have friendships that are toxic. Sometimes you want to write a book and you know that you need to be disciplined about it. Right. So we have the capability of controlling our behavior and what we do. And I learned that in my life that I did not have to be someone's punching bag metaphysically, metaphorically and physically. Yeah. There's a chapter where you go to Disney World with Mm -hmm. uh, one of the families you're staying with. And it's heartbreaking. Um, And I'm wondering if you've been back. Oh, my gosh. Have I been back? Where's my thing? But I think you used to work for Disney World, so it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, Look at those are the mouse ears with the uh, rainbow um, stickers. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely have been back. Um, And uh, I worked at Disney for more than a decade, and it was an incredible company to work with where I led corporate social responsibility for the media group. And I got to do and integrate foster care into our public service announcements. And I got to help foster families get free tickets at Disneyland and Disney World to the parks. Um, just did so many things that I was able to bring my, my experience to the job. And Disney was a wonderful, wonderful place to work that embraced that. And the reason you see queer ears on Mickey, uh, that I just showed you is I helped found the company wide pride group, which is our employee group for queer employees. And I got to be part, one of the founding members of that group to um, make Disney an even more embracing place of the, the LGBTQ plus community. And on so many levels, it was interesting that, you know, given the experience in the book, yeah, coming back in my later life. Right. One day I'm going to own this role. place. Which is, <laughs> um, what was it yeah. like the first time you went back? The first time after the bad time? You know, I wasn't in touch with a lot of the emotion I felt and right. I feel now. Yeah. Um, it was much more professional for me. Yeah. I, uh, went back and I was a keynote at something called Out and Equal, which was a, is a nonprofit that's trying to help corporations embrace the queer employees. And Disney was one of the sponsors. Right. And so I went back for that conference and I was there and I'm just, you know, it was, it was great. And then I've gone back since to Disneyland with my ne- nephews. It is, um, it's like you touch your past. It's like it's right there. Right. And, um, you know, even when I go to Disneyland, which is not Disney World, but it looks a lot like Disney World. You know, you go on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride and you look up and you see that sign and you think, I'm not going to, you know, 
curse too much, but you know, you can. Ha! Yeah. Look at me now. Right. Because you didn't get to have as much fun at Disney World in the book as you would have liked, and so I'm yeah. sure those those memories come back when you when you go there. Um, do you ever have dreams when you're asleep that of of those days? Yeah. Um, I I sometimes have um, pretty bad uh, dreams, and um, it's definitely better, but uh, you know. Yeah. Sometimes things haunt us. And, you know, I certainly have moments when I jolt awake and, you know, meditate and tell myself that I am completely fine. Um, but yeah, very much so. It's better and better as I kind of deal with all of it and, uh, embrace therapy and friendship and sharing my whole story. Yeah. And I was watching an interview you did, I think, with Tamron Hall and, some of these media appearances, it's one thing to write the book. And then you're like, Oh, I have to go and talk about it. Yeah. And I was like, how is, how are they, how is everyone just not crying? And through all of these <laughs> interviews, you know, what has it been like to go and talk about your book? Like, like this interview? Um, it gets easier. Okay. Um, it is exactly why I wrote the damn thing. Right. I want people to talk about children. I want people to talk about homeless kids. I want people to talk about foster kids. I want people to talk about the eight plus million kids living in poverty and I'm achieving that. And that feels really good. Yeah. Um, is there a bill? Absolutely. Um, I'm going to walk my dog when I'm done with this, this interview and just listen to, uh, music or listen to, uh, um, you know, morning becomes eclectic with KCRW, uh, and embrace my day. But it feels empowering. It feels like I'm doing what I set out to do. Yeah. And the response has been awesome. And, and the reason I say Forrest Gump kind of earlier when I was kind of referencing, how impossible is it that I've developed these network of contacts? Like the friends that I have friends at that show, Tamara yeah. Hall. I have friends at ABC News. How impossible is it that a kid that grew up in New York City the way that I did can reach out and say, Hey, I got a book coming out. Would you, would you give me the space to come on and talk about it? Yeah. It's insane. And yet here I am doing it. And so I feel like living a life of purpose, living, being my authentic self and, and being kind of a, a ceaseless advocate that these folks have known, it's all coming full circle. Right. And so is there an emotional cost? Absolutely. But it's right. one I knew going in and I am able to more than handle it. And it's what I want to do. It's what I want to do. It's what I want to do. Right. You have a blurb from Hillary Clinton. You spent a yes. year in the Clinton House, uh, White House as an intern when you were pretty young. What's your favorite memory of that year? What's a memory that comes to mind? Um, I have a couple. Um, it actually wasn't on the, um, it wasn't at the White House. It was when I worked for her Senate campaign. Oh, right. And, um, we went to this neighborhood just outside New York city. It was a very wealthy neighborhood and we had gone around and, and, you know, we went from like a union hall to like a wealthy neighborhood and it was on her Senate campaign when she was running uh, the first time. And, um, I had been driving all day. I was driving just like campaign staff and I was, I was a college student and she, um, I didn't see her. She came wherever she was. She came over and knocked on the window. Right. <laughs> And she's like, just want to thank you for, you know, working all day. Cause you know, I've been driving all day and I was like, uh, you know, uh, just gobsmacked. Cause I so respected this person who had been fighting for kids before I was even born. And she's like, I hear you grew up in foster care. And, and she basically was like, tell me about that. And I get a little emotional now because it's like, the reason I got involved in politics is to change outcomes for kids. And right. here's this woman, regardless, I, I think people treat her unfairly, but regardless of what you think about modern times, the woman's been an advocate for children for, for 50 plus years. And I so respect what she's done with Children's Defense Fund and Marion Wright Edelman and the other work she's done with CHIPS and other programs. And she's asking me about my experience. And I had the full attention of this woman who was one of the most powerful people on earth. And she asked questions and she listened. And years later, when I'm fundraising for her second presidential campaign as a hill raiser, she remembers. And uh, to be connected in even a small way to a person I so admire and respect is so profound for me. And, you know, in a weird way, she reminds me a lot of my mom. Um, That's interesting. I just think my mom is a brilliant person and, you know, just, just past brilliance is insanity. (laughs) 
And my mom is cursed with mental health issues. But I think my mom, had she not been, would have been a leader in our country. My mom is a brilliant person. And I look at her and I see all this potential that's trapped inside of a prison of mental health. And, and 80 plus years she's lived in this prison. And I think if my mom wasn't burdened by that, cursed, she would be one of those leaders in our country trailblazing in whatever field she damn well wanted to. Her three children all have advanced degrees. That's because of my mom. Um, I think she's a brilliant woman. And it's unfortunate it happened the way it did. But when I'm with Senator Secretary Clinton or around her listening to her, I see someone that I want to emulate. And uh, getting her blurb on my book was so meaningful to me. Well, I love that she, after, you know, she's busy, tired, all of that stuff, wants to hear your story and and really listens and is interested. But I also think stories like yours are what move the needle because you you can personalize it. You can humanize it. Um, What has changed in the system from what we will read in the book or have read in the book and what still needs to change? Like, how does it look different now than what we're reading and and what still needs to, to get better? So, so much progress, so much progress. The we have come to recognize that children are often better off with their families. That is a game-changing point of view. In our country, about two-thirds of kids that enter foster care still are there because of neglect. Neglect is a euphemism for poverty. We are criminalizing poverty. You can't care for your kid, we'll take it away. It's not because the kid was abused. Instead of giving mom a job or rent help that six months that they need it, or childcare, we take the kid away. And we have started to realize that that is not the best solution. Right. Um, and if we think about it, if two thirds of the kids are able, let's say just some of them are able to stay with their families with a little bit of wraparound with support, a little help. Yeah. the system gets less stressed and the kids that really need to be there are treated fully for what they need to be treated for. Also, we've come to terms with the fact that what we call group homes are congregate care, where you warehouse kids, is inhumane. It's bad. It's, it's worse really than bad. bad. Right. The one you describe it's, is not atypical. And we have, for example, in L.A. County, we've gone from thousands of kids living in group homes to 400. We are coming to terms with the fact that humans need love and are messy, and we have to recognize that. However, what I often say to folks is what needs to change if we all collectively close our eyes and we imagine putting our own child in foster care, what does that system look like? What would you want? What would you need to know? And if that's not what we have or you're not sure, (laughs) we need to create that. And we still don't have that. We still do not have that. More foster kids will leave foster care and go to jail than go to college. More foster kids will leave foster care and die than go to college. More foster girls will have a baby within months, if not a year, of leaving foster care than go to college. This is true today. And if that's not what you would want for your own child or your nephew or you as a child, then we need to create that system that that you would want for your own loved ones. We still aren't there. But that's the great thing about America. We can be the change we want to be. We can advocate for it. We treat queer kids much differently today than when I was a kid. And that's in part because of the work that I've done and others like Lambda Legal. Um, we can still always be better, but we've made great progress. I think one of the problems with child welfare and foster care is we're constantly screaming fire and nobody wants to run into a fire. We have to share the positive stories as well. We have to talk about the potential of these people, families, children, instead of constantly focusing on the horror. And that is part of the solution, is we've got to communicate outside of ourselves and bring in more people that care about this topic. Because I think in general, left, right, purple, whatever, red, blue, most people would not want children treated the way that children are treated in our system. And we need to capitalize on that feeling and continue to make the change. Yeah, I was just listening to a podcast from The Daily where they talked about Mm -hmm. how childhood poverty had gone down quite a lot and why and it was a sort of patchwork of different things but Mm -hmm. but the end result was 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 a much um better outcome yeah more than have and so if we can get that then we can keep going right we keep going we just got to keep going we have to 
we have to we cannot accept there are thousands of kids living within five miles of where I'm I'm living right now that are homeless. We cannot accept it. And right. as as great as it's been to reduce poverty, we just got to keep going. And I think our country, you know, we sent a person to the moon. We can damn well figure out how not to have kids starving in this country. We can figure that out. It's possible. We have to decide to do it. What's something that's come out of the book that surprised you? Oof. Did you hear from any people you never expected to or people that you don't know? or? Um... Yeah, I would say, and I'm not going to out anybody, but um, I can't tell you how many people that I've interacted with on the publicity tour, major personalities, that have said to me, my mom is a social worker or I grew up with foster siblings or whatever their connection is. So many people that have been in the media have, I've been successful in securing publicity and media. And part of the reason is because so many people's lives have been touched by foster care and adoption. And they come out to me and I'm like, Hey, I wish you'd come out on television or, right. or wherever. And it, we'll get there. I think we need a coming out movement for people that have been touched by the system, but that's in the book. If you read the book, you know, there's a list of folks that you would recognize from, um, you know, Steve Jobs, right. Chanel. You, you do a Willie big Nelson. list at the end, and it just keeps going yes. on and on. And Aristotle, yes. is that one of them? No. Aristotle, yes. Tol- Tolstoy, yeah. Babe Ruth, Dr. Ruth. Yeah. And the reason I do that is not because I expect every foster kid to become Coco Chanel right. or Cher or Marilyn Monroe, but because all of us could reach our full potential. And f- folks right in front of you are invisible in that they were in the system. And the moment we start to realize that as a people, that folks can reach the highest heights of our society, whatever it is, we can invest there. More attention will be paid. We live in a culture that's celebrity-driven. And I wanted to remind people that in every area of our life as a country, science, technology, music, sports, we are there. My people are there. We've trailblazed and created whole fields. We've changed the world. And we can continue to do that, but we've got to ease the way for kids that are coming up in the system if they're going to reach their full potential. So that's why I have the list. And it's funny because, you know, legal review of that list was pretty arduous. You yeah, I'm sure. There's a lot of people. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't just use Wikipedia. Um, if people want to do something around this issue, is there a place they can go to start to sort of get a lay of the land and see what they can do? So it's both self-serving and true. Go to my website, davidambrose.com. There's a tab called activism, and it links to opportunities, um, including the nonprofit I started called Foster More. Foster More, I think of as kind of the United Nations of foster care nonprofits, foundations, and corporations coming together to move the issue forward. And you can hyper-locally figure out where you can plug in. The first thing I would say is realize that you can. So many people walk by a homeless person and go, like, I, I could never help that person. Instead of always starting with what you can't do, start with what you can do. That website is a resource, but the realization that you have power and agency to do something is something I don't think we realize. We have forgotten that collectively we can do more than fill potholes as a country. We can do big things together. And I want folks to remember that. And I'll tell you just one final piece on what people can do. I'm running a PSA campaign right now through Fostermore, and it's called Donate Your Smallpox. So when we get in an elevator, when you start a Zoom call, when you're talking to a colleague after a weekend and they ask you, what did you do that weekend? How's your kids? What did you have for lunch? No one actually cares about the answer. Right. Instead of using that, that time for nonsense, talk about kids. Talk about kids in poverty. Talk about foster kids. And it doesn't have to be dark and depressing. It could be something fun like, I love your outfit. Did you know Coco Chanel was a foster kid? It could be something really interesting like, hey, you know, I'm not a sports guy, but, you know, like, hey, baseball, 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 Babe Ruth. Right. You could find a way in, and it doesn't have to be just the celebrity of it. You find your fun fact. Use Google and find a fun fact and give that time to start talking about children in this country. We need to center that topic of dialogue in our country, not from a place of depression, but from a place of hope. All of us can donate our small talk. That is the lowest level that I'm asking people to do. Realize they can do something. Donate your small talk. Volunteer. Donate a dollar. Get involved locally. Become a foster parent. There's so much we can do. But the lowest level is to care enough to educate yourself and then start giving your time. Maybe it's just your small talk. 
I had an experience last night that I'm going to share with you, but I may cut out because I don't know. It's, <laughs> it might be, I don't know, whatever. So I just finished reading your book and I was, I was processing it and I went to the gas station and I'm filling up my tank and this, um, homeless man came, came up to me and, you know, he asked for something and he asked for like $5 and 62 cents, <laughs> like an amount. And I, um, I engaged with him and I, and I had $6 in my wallet and I gave it to him. And he, and he goes, he goes, what's your name? I said, it's Dennis. And he goes, no, your name is blessing. I don't know. It was the most beautiful interaction and I would not have been a jerk to him yeah. and I might've helped him. I, I, I tend to, but because I had that in your head, I was like, no, I'm really going to be in this moment. I'm going to ask him what his name is. And it was beautiful. And I don't know. I'm embarrassed to tell the story because it feels like, oh, now you're doing, now you're a little bit nice. I'm never a jerk. I, I think people, I don't know. When you, when you see people day to day, I, I think. It becomes white noise. It becomes it's white noise. And you don't want to sound like just by being relatively nice, you want some kind of metal or something. I don't, right. How do you interact day to day? With, with people that were in this situation that you found yourself in? Well, first of all, we should tell those stories. Yeah. I'm so tired of talking about nonsense celebrity stuff or politics that I can't impact. Right. We should tell the stories to each other. It was, be it was a beautiful interaction. It was a hu it's the most human moment I've heard. We should talk about that and, and how you felt. And we should have that be part of our conversations. It's actually beautiful. I know the right answer is to lift up not individuals, but policies and support nonprofits that giving money to individuals is not the right answer. It doesn't, it doesn't change outcomes. I also recognize that I can't walk by. Right. And I, especially if it's a child. And I know that, you know, what I'm supposed to say and what is true is that instead of that, we should find a local nonprofit and give them that money that's doing more than a handout. Um, and I want each person to find their own pathway on this. Maybe do both. Right. Uh, but I, but I, I think, can't. but I think it's also not even about the money. It's about looking at them as like they're a person. Yeah. Don't look away. <laughs> at the very least, I always acknowledge a person. I'm like, you know, I cannot help you today. Good luck. God bless. And I walk forward. I can't do that with kids. I never walk by kids or young people. But I also recognize that a lot of people are fearful and that's okay. I'm not asking you to overcome, you know, your deep embedded fear today. Instead of what you can't do, you walk by that person, you avert your eyes, you don't talk to them. Then think about what you can do. Don't hate yourself. Don't judge yourself. Go find out what you can do. Go Google nonprofit homelessness, insert town name and do something. Uh, if you can't do what you did, fine. No problem. What can you do? And that's the part that I think we fail down on. Um, we feel like, oh, God, I can't help that person. I'm embarrassed, right? Whatever. And then we stop. So I think actually what you shared is beautiful. And I wish more people would share those stories of like, hey, I voted today. Or, hey, did you know? Blah, blah, blah. Instead, we talk about just nonsense. And, <laughs> and nonsense is beautiful. We need yeah. the mental energy and space. I talk about nonsense all the time. Yeah. Um, but if you shared that story with 10 people in person, I think we'd start to change dialogues, which would change outcomes, which would change the world. Well, I know 10 people that listen to this podcast. I think, I think <laughs> on a good Fair way. enough, sir. Fair enough. Way. Well, it's, I, I did a deep dive research project on James Baldwin a couple of years ago, and, and he thought of everyone in the world as a brother. And that really kind of stuck with me. So I try to, even when somebody that I see on television is being a jerk or whatever, I always try to think of that a little bit. And I think it's something that stayed with me. And does resonate with these interactions. Okay, tell people how they can find your book and how they can learn more about you. Absolutely. Uh, book is available everywhere. So if you want to listen to it, it's on Audible. Um, I read the audiobook. Um, it's, of course, available at my company where I work, Amazon. So feel free to buy it there. It's available at your public library for free for those of those who can buy books. And then it's, I hope people go to the local bookstore as well. It's where I bought my copy. Um, and, uh, all the sites you could possibly imagine, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, it, it's everywhere. And I encourage people to buy a few copies, uh, and share them with people in their life. Um, 
where you can learn more about me is my website, davidambrose.com. And uh, of course, I'm on Facebook and Twitter where I share my thoughts quite often. So encourage people to, to find me there. I'm sure the show notes will have that, those social handles. Yeah. What, um, what's your life like now? I think when you read the book, you yeah. wonder what he's up to. Well, gosh, you have to wait for the second volume. No, right. I, what's life like now? I have a beautiful home. I am a very happily a member of the Los Angeles community. I advocate for foster care in my, my uh, every day through my job and through um, the work that I do outside of my job. And you work for I, Amazon, right? I work for Amazon. I lead community engagement for part of the country. And that work is how do we help communities? And I am so proud to work there and do the work that I get to do every day to give back to communities where we are in a huge part of the country. And I absolutely love that that's my job. And that's how I get judged is what impact have you had? And I love that. Um, I did similar work at Disney, just different tools in the tool chest than I have now. And it's been really fun. I've had really, it's been there for about a year and it's been just this most incredible year of inventing new ways to be better members of the community. And I've actually, I brought foster care. I brought homelessness. I brought all these issues that are so important to me, to my work. And it's been nothing but embraced. I love it. That's beautiful. Um, here's my final question. What's a little thing that never leaves you? Like, you know, when I, when I drove by a Dunkin' Donuts the other day, I thought, oh, that's where David used to put the creamers <laughs> in the thing. Is there, or, or, or like, I bet you make your bed really well still. Like, what are the, what's the thing <laughs> that's like, this is, this is always going to be a part of my thing. And it, it could be a positive thing, of course. Yeah. So, um, my birthday is November 1st and whenever I see 1101 on a clock on the treadmill or wherever, I say a prayer for my mom. And I've done that since I was a child. Um, I, I say the same prayer that I said since I was a kid. And I, whenever I see that time or those numbers in whatever way, uh, and I pray that my mom, that God's hand would come down and still the voices in her head. And then I could sit down and talk to her and meet her. Um, and I have done that since as far back as I can remember. And I still do it in my forties. Wow. That's, that's, that was not what I was expecting. And that's really a beautiful thing. Um, thank you so much for the conversation and for the beautiful book. Uh, you should feel very proud of it. And the rollout seems like you're really like bringing great stuff out to, to people that need to hear it. So congrats on everything. Thank you. And thank you for the platform and sharing your, your audience. I really appreciate it. All right. Bye, David. Bye. Thanks again to David Ambrose for the great interview. Check out his book, A Place Called Home. I listened to the audiobook, and he narrates it himself. He does a wonderful job. But however you get it, uh, it it's a great book. So I highly recommend it. All right. So this happened. Um, you know, we do the Mismatch Game show here in Los Angeles. I've hosted it for like 18 years. It's It's like a match game parody. So we did two shows, uh, pre-Halloween um, shows. First time we'd ever done a Halloween thing, which was fun. I dressed up like Billy Butcherson from Hocus Pocus, which I've never seen, but the costume was fun. You know what? I ordered that thing on Spencer's Gifts. It showed up, and it was good. I liked it. It worked. Um, so, yeah, I have friends that are super good at costumes and into costumes, and I'm not the greatest. But I, I you know... I pushed, I added it to cart, and I ordered it, and it worked. So that's cool. And one thing that's really exciting about this last mismatch game is we raised our ticket price to $20. I know, it's time, right? Uh, after 18 years. And we made over $6,000 for two shows. That's with the card auctions where we auction off the cards that the panelists write on. And it was one of our biggest weekends ever in terms of fundraising. So very excited uh, about the... Um, the mismatch game. But the other thing that I did last week, which is very fun, is I got to see a taping of Dancing with the Stars, which is one of my favorite shows. I watched that in the way that my mother watched Lawrence Welk. It's, I find it comforting. It's pretty people. It's colors, sparklies, dancing. I like it when the kids dance. So my roommate and I, Penelope, got to go to Dancing with the Stars um, because of my friend Robert, um, who might be listening to this podcast. He, uh, he He's a regular listener. And um, he, he had the hookup. And first of all, that place is much bigger than you think. Because sometimes you go to tapings and things seem smaller. Like Price is Right is much smaller than it seems. But this place was big. It was kind of cavernous. And there's, you know, the two levels. And there's, there's you know, they, they're shooting everywhere. Like 
there's little sets on the side where they do little vignettes for part of the dances. And because it's on Disney Plus now, there are no commercials. So there are these tape pass- packages where the couples are in rehearsal, but the whole set is being changed in real time in the room. So it's fun to watch all of the, the technicians get that set changed or, you know, bring down that backdrop for that number or whatever it was. Uh, so it was really fun to be there. I loved it. I love that show. And I was very careful to watch the couples to just see the vibe when the cameras aren't on. Are they getting along? Do they like each other? Yeah, everyone seemed cool. Everyone seemed like they were into it. There was a lot of support from different panelists or, or contestants to other people. There was no weirdos, no James Cordons, even though his his face is on the side of the building. I saw no tantrums or <laughs> unprofessional rude behavior. Everyone was cool. Um, here's my here's my uh, prediction. I think it's going to be Gabby from The Bachelor, um, Charlie DeLilio, or whatever her last name is, the YouTube dancer. She's really good. And I think Wayne Brady's going to be the top three. I think those are the top three. Shangela is a dark horse, but could could be formidable. Um, it's fun to have Shangela in the mix. And she's dancing with my favorite pro, who was Gleb, who is so dreamy. He's so dreamy. Um, so, you know... That could happen. Anyway, it was really fun to be there. Very exciting to be there in the room where it happens, as they say. So, all right, that's enough for this week. Thank you for listening. Um, I'd like to give a shout-out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes. JB Bursey provides additional technical support. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for placement music. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye! Bye!